<clears throat> oh, hello. Do you have it? Did you bring it with you? Oh, it's beautiful. We Vizlay talk about shadow as if it had no magic. But can you honestly look at this, even here under the light of indigo, and tell me that this is anything less than true making? Wood and leather, gold and lead and lamp black, sure. But I'm telling you, there is something of soul here. Here's a secret about the Grey. The Nons had knowledge. The Numa seek still. In any case, thank you. I know this came at great risk to you. <clears throat> um, what are you drinking tonight? Hello again, dear friends. The corn moon is rounding, as little Emma would say, and will shine brilliantly and full in the sky tonight. Do take a moment, wherever you may be, to look up and ponder it. I have a question for you. Have you ever held a precious crafted thing in your hand? Have you run your fingers along its edges or pressed its material to your cheek? Tilted it just so, letting the light play across its surface? What about smell? Have you inhaled deeply, drawing in its essence as aroma? Have you asked yourself who owned this thing? caressed it, or used it, or stained it, long before it reached your hands? Who was its maker? Which imperator called its form into being? Tonight, we will talk about the magic of making. There could be no perfect guide for us than Glenn Fleischman, a journalist who has long studied and written about making, technology, design, typography, and who is currently crafting an artifact of his own. Glenn is particularly intrigued by the weird liminal spaces between analog and digital, old technologies and new, and about the liminality of the printed page, too, the strange, synesthetic way our fingers, but also eyes and minds, can run across its surface. Logivores need not apply. Oh, and a program note. Given the subject matter, this episode is filled with visual examples. If you're using a player that supports images, like Apple Podcasts or Overcast or Pocket Casts, take a look now and then. We have another guest, too. Lovers of printed pages are lovers of books, and I decided to interview another gentleman, a bibliophile, Steve Robinson, a collector and bookseller who has spent his whole life surrounded by lovingly curated library shelves. He is also, if you didn't guess it, my father. After listening to him talk, you will definitely understand more about why I turned out the way I did. These two men are brimming with insights about the beauty of craft as vehicle for story. Tonight, we are off to the Silver Sun with Vizla's Call. So Glenn Fleischman, we have so much to talk about today, especially of all days. But first, I want to know what you're drinking tonight. I am drinking a lemon zinger tea, an herbal tea. Lemon zinger. Yes. It uh, has a, a long association for me because back when I was a pretentious high school student in the <laughs> party hippie little town of Eugene, Oregon, which is a lovely town that's become big since I left there years ago, you know, I'd go to a cafe with my bohemian friends 
not in the 1950s, the 1980s, and we would drink scandalous beverages like lemon and red zinger teas. And uh, <laughs> occasionally, I remember my first espresso. I love a lemon zinger tea. Love the rose hips, love the lemon, but it also is something I've been drinking, I think, for 40 years. I worked at a coffee shop in my hippie college town uh, <laughs> in the late 90s or something, and they used to serve, I think they called it Razzleberry, or they had some silly name for it, but it was definitely tea that was just red and yellow <laughs> zingers mixed together. And uh, I can taste it right now as I, as I think about it. I was convinced growing up that uh, Eugene, Oregon, Santa Cruz... Boulder, <laughs> Ithaca, maybe some other cities, but there was a big underground railroad that connected them all. There is. Because yep. you met the same people in each of those places over and over again. Yes. Flagstaff is a minor stop on that Flagstaff. way as well, which is where I am currently. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. I have in front of me a thing, but I want you to tell me in your experience what this is called, because this mm. is a regional question. It's just a mix of iced tea and lemonade. But in your life, what would you call that? Oh, at Arnold Palmer? Yeah, that's me too. Uh, here in Arizona, that's definitely what they call it. I bartended for a little while in a bar in North New Jersey. And there and only there, all the people that I ran into that ordered it called it an uptown. Oh. Which I thought was fascinating. Interesting. I did not know there was a regionalism. I thought that was like a universal American experience thing. <laughs> it, it is entirely possible because North New Jersey is North New Jersey that all of America except for North New Jersey, I was in uh, West Orange at the time. Oh. Maybe everyone else calls it an Arnold Palmer, but. I love that. It's a, it's a great, one of the great family of drinks, the things that are half one thing and half another, like a shandy. Yes. So good. Well, I'm so excited to have you on the show. I, I've known of you as a journalist and writer for my entire Apple fan life, I guess. But I didn't really realize until just a few years ago, your background in typography and design. And I'm excited to talk about any or all of the above today. Oh, it's really fun to talk today too. As you hinted, today is a very exciting day as we record this. Why is this an exciting day for you, Glenn <laughs> Well, I had the most successful thing I've done in my professional life, I would say. Ah. It, so that's good. I, uh, well, I had, this, I had this bee in my bonnet, an itch in my palm, something like that. <laughs> I found myself more and more fascinated with um, the roots of things. And it's led me to some really interesting, great places and conversations with people and kind of going backwards in time. But in my head, I'm always looking back with an interest of what's looking forward. And, and I'll say I picked this up in part from my friend and colleague and, and mentor, uh, Tom Standage, who's a deputy editor at The Economist. And is a person who brought me in initially when I've uh, been writing there uh, freelance since mid 2000s. And he writes books that are like, hey, this internet thing, you know, the telegraph was really just like the internet. <laughs> nice. And he makes a case. It's not a conceit, right? And he's, uh, one of his more recent books was uh, Writing on the Wall, uh, 2000 Years of Social Networking, something I'm getting the title not perfectly. And it's about the ways in which people engaged in social networking when they had scribes in Rome and how they oh, exchanged. Goodness. And oh my, and you're like, this is not a conceit. It's, it's, we're always people. We always have social interaction. And so we think we've invented something new and the scale is new and the speed is new, but the nature of the thing isn't. Mm, absolutely. So I'm always intrigued with that. So anyhow, I got this idea in my head that I wanted to create a collection of type artifacts that someone could have, like actual stuff, because I have a little bit of metal type. I have a little bit of this and that. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to create a collection for someone that they could own. And then when they're talking about it or thinking and want to show it, 
they want to just pick it up and hold it, you have real stuff, which is hard to get. And then I'm like, mm -hmm. oh, wait a minute. This isn't just like a box of type nonsense. This is a museum. I'm going to make uh -huh. tiny museums. And <laughs> they're not just museums because they are time capsules because I will make it in a way that will last the ages. And so in 100 years, maybe 1,000 years, someone discovers this. And it explains the history of type and printing, but also because it has real artifacts, it tells a story by itself. And it would actually even be like a secret of how to reinvent printing, you know, how to become a reenactor of history because it would all be there. <laughs> and there's this notion it's used in um, data, it's locks, it's lots of cheap copies, safely stored, something like that. Mm. The idea is that you don't keep one copy of something monolithic, you make a lot of copies. So it's a museum, it's a small box full of real stuff with a book that explains the entire history of type and everything that's in this box. And it's also a gift to the future. So if you buy one, you get the enjoyment of it, but you know, and I don't know people, you know, it's not like a family heirloom per se, but it's small. It's the kind of thing that could get passed on and it is information packed. Mm. It's very going to be very dense. So that was my wacky idea. And, um, it did very well. I can absolutely promise that if I had one of these things, I would be passing it along to my children. Instead, <laughs> I have the uh, $10 backer tier PDF of the book that you're putting together, which I'm also very excited about, but doesn't have quite the same gravitas behind it. Well, so it has a little more short-lived aspect of it potentially. <laughs> uh, but so I uh, did this as a Kickstarter and I figured out there's a lot of um, some aspects of overhead, like uh, printing the book. Actually, I was hoping to reach a, a funding level, and I did, where I could afford to have hot metal type composition, monotype composition mm -hmm. for the book, and it's going to be printed by letterpress. It will likely be printed. My plan is to print it with a printer I know in London, who I visited a couple of years ago and is, is a well-known fine art printer. He used to have monotype composition. There's a whole funny story there where it's now up uh, north in York. But anyway, so he's, he will... Uh, arrange the composition. I believe the, com the compositor uses a Macintosh driven monotype typesetting hot metal system. Whoa. <laughs> yes. It's a very cool, phenomenal. uses pneumatic pressure to uh, typeset <laughs> from a Mac. Uh, so that, so there's overhead for things like that. And then there's just being able to acquire stuff like uh, the Hamilton wood type and printing museum. Uh, they do mostly demonstration carving of wood type using the old methods. But they do a little contract work too, and they make some fresh stuff in house. They sell sets of type. So I got in touch with them, and I'm commissioning, uh, you know, a piece of freshly cut type using a historic method that will go in every collection, as well as I'll get some historic type that will be included too. Ostensibly, I wanted to do an edition of a hundred, and I think I will be able to sell the edition out before the thing ships in uh, next January. So oh, this is wonderful. the most successful project of any kind I think I've ever undertaken. Ah. Well, first of all, just congratulations. Like what <laughs> a wild, much. wild idea. And to see it come together, it's uh, super cool. I used to teach at a university and I was thinking as I was doing this, I wish I still was in that position where maybe I could convince the visual communications department I used to work for that this is a thing they need to budget for and give one to the program. Well, the cool thing though is that their letterpress has come back in a big way. So I figured this is for people or institutions that don't have access to the real stuff, right? They don't have print, you know, historic stuff lying around. And some of it is I'm going to be collecting modern pieces as well. So there'll be a piece of dye injection molded letterpress modular kit from this group called a P22 Type Foundry. They mostly do digital fonts. 
they've been doing it for decades. Rich Kegler is the founder, and uh, they do really wonderful work and revivals and original work, just really meaningful designs. And some of it is like licensed from artists. So they have a Cezanne typeface and a Duchamp typeface that they license mm -hmm. the the work, but they created typefaces that are of the style of, and anyways, interesting digital stuff. But Rich is also a letterpress printer, and he worked with Starshape Press, a wonderful printer in the Midwest, and they developed a modular block printing system. So all the pieces are different curves and whatever that's based on old metal modular systems. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh, I have to include, so I'm, I'm going to include one piece of P22 blocks, B-L-O-X, in this as well. So it's very modern. I'll include a little photopolymer, which are these rubbery plates that you can have made from digital files that are letterpress compatible, as well as, you know, I hope uh, I'll get matrices, the molds used for old uh, hot metal type systems to see if I can find uh, metal punches used to make type a piece at a time, the starting phase and making type. And so it's gonna be this interesting amalgam. So it'll be a, a teaching collection and kind of a work of art, like something that'll be sort of amazing to pull out and say, well, here's, you know, 200, 300 years worth of the history of type right in one little box. Oh, so good. And then tell me a little about the box itself, too. That's got a, a story behind it, the design and crafting of that. Yeah, it's it's funny. This actually goes back to um, 2D laser cutting, of all things. Like, this is where <laughs> I, I just get overjoyed about the mix of old and new. And uh, a friend of mine founded this company called Glowforge. It's here where I am in Seattle with a couple of uh, colleagues. It's a 2D laser cutting system, but it's like a tabletop size thing. And I was like, you know, I want to have laser cut elements. So some, the big chapter numbers in the book are laser cut. There's a few other things, but I also wound up teaching a workshop on letterpress and laser cutting, which has become a bigger thing. So I taught this workshop and it was really amazing to see people, some had letterpress background, some did not. You know, one person had been involved in printing for 40 years and other folks were just, they like had pre-ordered a Glowforge and were like, I'm also interested in letterpress, but I don't. And so we brought all these people together, had this amazing seminar and made a lot of stuff. And one of the folks who came worked for Glowforge at the time, my friend, Anna Robinson, and she'd been doing some work with us when I'd gone over to Glowforge uh, to do some project work to prep for the seminar. Anyway, she and I uh, stayed in touch and she's a wood carver and a quilter and a doula and everything, <laughs> as you are. Obviously. We said, like, what can we do together? Like, we want to have a project together. And we started talking several months ago and she just started cabinetry making school to more formally learn some of the stuff that she's been doing uh, you know, more, inf you know, more kind of on the street corner. Anyway, so this is a project we came up with the two of us where she would design and make the boxes, the cases for this. And we started getting into planning and it's been great for her because she just started this last fall in cabinetry school and she has all these mentors and all this equipment. So the case is going to be kind of a little work of art with drawers and the book that goes with it will slide into a a slot in the case itself. So it'll be integral, it'll be a little book slot. And that's kind of part of what's exciting too, is so these will be, you know, a combination of handmade, things will be cut by hand, cut on electric, you know, motor-driven equipment, cut on a laser cutter. And I'll be doing some of the assembly. We're certain, you know, at some point we'll figure out where the split is, but she's going to spend some number of days just cutting blanks once we get the prototype, uh, final prototype done, where she's just in a wood shop just cutting all the sides and all that kind of stuff and mass quantities and so that's kind of part of what's exciting too is we're going to bring in this craft 
So it's not printing, but it's an allied craft, like printing and cabinetry kind of like joining and that kind of thing. Those have gone hand in hand since the beginning of printing. Do you know there's a book called Moxon's Complete Exercises in Mechanical Printing? It's from the 1600s, and it was part of a series. <laughs> I knew about it independently because I'd seen it, and it's been scanned forever. And I didn't realize until uh, last year I was researching an article about the history of technical documentation, you know, which dates back centuries. Chaucer wrote a thing about how to use an astrolabe, you know, for instance. That's really a like how-to <laughs> manual. And so I'm reading up on Mox, and I'm like, oh, Mox wrote a series of books. And one of them, the one I knew about, was essentially here is how you build a print shop, you start by cutting wood and you start by getting these metals. And it's and like, here's how you train the employees. Here's how you cast type. I mean, it's really like, wow. um, so, it's fascinating. So Mox in this book is basically like, let's say you're standing in an open field. Here's how you build a print shop with some trees around you and buying some metal. So Moxon also wrote books about joining and cabinetry. Like there are all these books about the woodworking side. So it's only a relatively recent phenomenon, like let's say recent being the late 1800s, that printing and cabinetry and joining and all those allied wood arts were not in constant connection with one another. That's not the entire reason why we're doing it this way, but it's great because it'll be a little museum cabinet. It has that kind of connection and it's going to be meant to last. We're going to do everything we can to have everything be archival or you know vapor-free or whatever. So it all comes together. <laughs> So, so good. It came down to the wire when it, it, it ended today and also funded today or yesterday. What was the, what was the story? Oh, well, actually it, it accelerated really rapidly a few days ago. Like, <laughs> sure. It was about 60, 70% there. And I'm like, you know, people always come in at the end. Sure. John Gruber uh, of Daring Fireball took a real, he's a, he's a friend and he took a real interest in this campaign, uh, had me on his podcast uh, where we talked about, you know, technical stuff. And then at the end, he's like, oh yeah, tell me about your Kickstarter. He posted something on his site and I will tell you there is a Daring Fireball effect and it was great. Yes. <laughs> that is a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing. And so it, it totally, uh, it went through the roof and it went from, you know, like $33,000 to, you know, 75,000 over a week. Oh, wonderful. And I think without that, it would have still funded. It would have come down to the wire, but it's really nice to have that breathing room and to give me more overhead so we can do more interesting things. Yeah. The, the overlap of <laughs> John Gruber and interest in, you know, fine craft and typography <laughs> and technology. And I mean, you, you can't do much better than that. I'll definitely put a link to that episode in the show notes. Um, John Gruber has a podcast called The Talk Show with John Gruber, which he talks about as his director's cut for his blog during Fireball. <laughs> a reason I started great. this podcast was because of John Gruber. So oh, it, that's all, great. it all comes back around in a way. Yep. <laughs> yeah, he and I were talking about, you know, hot metal type. And, he, and I'm like, well, you know that Ed Tufty, when he did his first series of books, like Envisioning Information and a Visual Display of Quantitative Information, he did not like the digital options for type. Phototype was on the way out. And so what did he do? Of course he had it set in hot metal, right? Because that's what you do. And then he had it photographed, you know, for the layout. Sure. And it was printed by offset techniques. And, you know, there's the famous story. Tufti founded his own press because he couldn't get a publisher to give him what he wanted, including control <laughs> of the design. So of course he founded a press and made millions of dollars off self-publishing <laughs> his books. And I mentioned this to John, and John's like, oh yeah, because he didn't like the Bembo. And I'm like, that's right. There was a bad version of Bembo. <laughs> that monotype had released and the Bixlers had the real Bembo. So of course you just have it set in monotype. Why not in hot metal and have it proofed and then 
scan the proofs and there's your books. That whole conversation reminded me a little of when they were in the process of shifting from analog to digital as far as music. And there was the whole thing of like, technically, theoretically, you know, a digital delivery of audio should be better. But then how come the early sort of digital transfers to CD from like old masters for records or something just sounded terrible because they were technically perfect, but they weren't made with the craftsmanship that kind of took the medium into account. I loved that story you were telling about the difference between (laughs) photographing the actual (laughs) lead itself versus what actually happens once the ink presses into the page and then takes residence there. Well, it, it's come, yeah, it comes up again and again, right? Is that like digital fidelity is sometimes too good or with type, there was this transition to phototype and people went back to original drawings because they still had, you know, the money and time and connection. When they went to digital, it was often done very cheaply. And instead of going back to the original drawings, they took the phototype output and basically scanned it for digital. And so you have the wrong amount of gain, the wrong effect, everything is bad. Um, so for instance, uh, Monotype released this new set of Bertolt Volpe typefaces, which is the, another rabbit hole I went down in 2017. And the guy who did them, uh, Toshio Magari, who works at Monotype, he went to Bertolt Volpe's original pencil drawings, which are in Monotype's archives and in a, a type museum in London, he went and looked at the brass, uh, at, the, at the adaptations Monotype had made. And they're like, oh, you know, this G has to be tucked in because on our supercaster typesetter, everything has to fit within this number of units, right? So he's able to go back and free it from wow. you know, all of Volpe's work from the metal to the current period was basically phototype and then bad phototype to digital. Or, or inadequate, maybe not bad, but inadequate. And then so he was able to go and reinterpret the original work for the intent of actually printing it with also a consideration for it being used online. And that's, it's amazing that Monotype can underwrite that is, is my thinking. Do you know the book, The Revenge of Analog that came out a few years ago? I've seen it. I don't, I haven't read it. I 100% recommend this to you based on, on what you've described as your interest. It is such a lovely book because it's not like, ha ha, analog's coming back, but it's David Sachs did this amazing job of helping to explain why it seems like all these abandoned media have made a comeback. Anyway, it's not about fetishism. It's about board games and notebooks and... Mm-hmm analog film and uh, vinyl. Every time I see one of those charts, it shows the amount of vinyl that's being sold now. It is hilarious. I mean, it's mm-hmm. going to outstrip CDs because everything's gone to digital. So the C- so vinyl will, I don't know if it hit yet. I think vinyl will ultimately be outselling CDs if that hasn't happened already. I think I read somewhere that that's happened already. And even in stores, like in a Walmart or Target kind of context, I think I remember oh reading God. that. That's great. But it makes sense, right? Because if you're after the CD, then why bother? You just buy the license download and without DRM on the major things. I mean, the people have fetishy ideas about vinyl sounding better, but regardless, it's just like it's a different medium. And I like the notion of like you get the vinyl and it comes with an MP3. There's something really cool about that. It is, yeah. It, there's there's something about the ritual too. There was no better medium for sitting and opening the thing and having huge artwork and all the lyrics right there. That whole package and the whole ritual, that's a very different way of appreciating music than just the instant flood of constant digital music. And that has its own strengths too, but it's, it's really nice sometimes to take a minute, wallow in the physicality of a beautiful <laughs> object as part of your experience of the art, you know? Dear friends, it is once again my utter delight to tell you about Gamers Giving, a longtime sponsor of this show. I appreciate their support, 
But to be honest, their generosity to me, and then likewise by extension to you, pales in comparison to the generosity they heap on their community. Gamers Giving is a Denver area 501c3 charity created by gamers for gamers. If you live in the area, they host events and attend cons where they make their vast game library available for free. Next up is BCon, September 26 through 29. But where Gamers Giving really kicks in is when they are gathering together to support each other. In 2016, the group shifted from raising funds for local causes to directly helping community members when unexpected catastrophe would strike. Vizsla knows the gaming community as a whole could use more kindness, and Gamers Giving is a beacon. Pay a visit at facebook.com gamersgiving and see how you might give to another gamer. It's also serendipity, right? Like this is why it's fun to go to Powell's books, even though you could yeah. shop Powell's online. A joy of Powell's or, or the strand or something like that is at that scale, you wander around and you'll never get through all the books, but books call to you off the shelves and you yeah. can't get that in a digital world. What's interesting is it's not even that you necessarily came there for one specific thing yeah. and then you happen to get this recommendation of, oh, because you like, you might also like, you're literally there for the mass of it. I want to go be around <laughs> some books today. <laughs> I want to enter into the middle of that and just be overwhelmed by it and then kind of follow my instincts, which is a very different and delightful process from sharpshooting with great accuracy, precisely what you want and then leaving. Yeah, why do we have to be efficient about what we find? I mean, the whole right. a random walk and serendipity is actually the joy of discovery is terrific. And you know, most of us aren't single-minded and and trying to get the most efficient way I can buy this novel. So I now often will buy, you know, I'll go to the library for some books if I'm not sure I'm gonna read it multiple times or pass it on, but I often will buy a copy of a book and it'll be, you know, thirteen or fourteen dollars and the Kindle book is eight because I wanna own it, look at it, hold it not have it in a digital form necessarily, but I also may want to give it to somebody else really easily. And if I don't think I'm ever going to give it to someone else to read, and I don't think I'm ever going to read it again, and it's purely for informational value, and I also want to be able to say, search the contents, then yeah, absolutely, I'm going to buy a Kindle version or an yep. ebook version. Yep. I'm sort of infamously in my office and around my life kind of digital, like I don't really have paper anywhere and I never have a pen on me. But if I'm going to sit and actually take an evening and sit down and read a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time, there's nothing better than having a real book or a nicely made book or a typeset book or, you know, something in your hands. Whereas if I'm just on my way through the airport, reading a paperback as an ebook on my iPad is great, you know. To, to make the digital reference there too, one thing that I found very interesting as photo apps got better over time. Remember when mm -hmm. Apple first introduced uh, iPhoto? <laughs> I think that was the first name even. And there, yep. Steve Jobs was like, it's a digital shoebox, except you can look at everything. It was super slow and funky and crashing, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, we do actually live in an age, like my copy of photos on my Mac uh -huh. and photos on my phone and tablet, they're super fast. I can look at every photo I've ever uploaded. And holy cow, I consistently, like not every day, but almost every day, I wound up something surfaces because I can see my entire visual history of, since I've digitized or took digital photos all in one place. And it doesn't weigh me down because it's not physical storage. So, uh, you know, I'm paying Apple $10 a month for, uh, for iCloud storage. That's the worst part of it. It's not very bad, but it, <laughs> but it is that funny thing of like, even digitally, there was still this incredible cost with surfacing old stuff. 
And so you didn't look at it. And now everything is almost random access, not quite, but it is almost the same mental and physical effort to achieve any point in your digital history. And that feels to me new, despite the promise for like the last 30 years of it. Right. It's interesting what that does to your memories, though, too. You'll appreciate this story. I was one of the people in line for the 2007 iPhone in New York. Oh, yeah. And at some point, I was like, man, I really want to go back and look at some pictures of that day. And of course, having not yet owned an iPhone, I have pictures from that night, <laughs> the, the very first pictures I took in the house trying out the terrible tiny phone on the original iPhone because they're in iCloud. But from... 2007 until right now today, every picture that I've ever taken of increasing quality over time and like with different mm. algorithms doing the dithering, so they all have a different quality, you know, are there. But then all my pictures from before that got a, a box full of old zip disks that I have no idea how to get stuff oh, back off of. And yeah. like, I have a tremendous amount of digital history that I care a great deal about that's completely lost to me pictures, but also files and things I worked on. And, and I just didn't you know, I didn't know enough to take care to make sure that that stuff was sustainable. And I still theoretically own it, although who knows if the discs have rotted. I mean, I have no idea. But from the day I got my iPhone <laughs> until today, literally almost every picture that I've taken, I can just look up right now. And so it's a fascinating cutoff. It's like, it's very weird. That's a really interesting problem. I'll tell you funny, like history is this is one of the things that dates me is I worked at Kodak at the Center for Creative Imaging in uh, Camden, Maine in the <laughs> early 90s. It was a very brief lived educational facility that Kodak ran. And it's a whole bunch of interesting stories around how it even came to be, some of which involve oh, I'm sure. Miss Mal and nonfeasance. And uh, anyway, <laughs> moving along, not mine, fortunately. Um, we had two things that were amazing. We had the very first digital camera, commercial digital camera, not like the first model, but the first unit, we had serial number 00001 of the DCS 100. And that was just our camera. We got to walk around and teach classes with and whatever. It was bizarre. You know, you're looking at it like, really, it's a serial number one. It's like, yeah, we figured we'd give it to you because you're teaching. All right. right." And so that was fascinating. Right. And the other was we had an entire photo CD system. Now you may be too young to remember photo CD. Do you remember photo CD? I'm on the edge of photo CD. I do remember photo CDs. Oh my gosh. And it was incredible. It was totally ahead of its time. Super high resolution scans, uh, Mm -hmm. a a fallback format. The format for Photo CD essentially broke the file format into different resolutions. So you could pull out thumbnails super fast for display. It worked with a CD system that you could connect and play uh, CDs and Photo CDs on your TV. And uh, the whole thing was astonishing ahead of its time. And it was so far ahead of its time uh, that it just crashed and burned. But we had a scanning system. So I brought in all the film I owned up to that point. And I scanned every picture I ever took oh my gosh. at very high resolution. Uh-huh. I, mean, I think the, I think the produced like 16 megabyte or 18 megabyte files is the top resolution in, you know, 1991. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't need to rescan. Like I'm out down to film grain for the kind of quality of what I was doing probably. Anyway, so, so I was very lucky to be at that point. And so I had those CDs at some point. I'm like, oh my God, those CDs are going to degrade. So I have suddenly enough storage where I can copy a 600 meg CD over onto this backup drive and then whatever. And so I've been able to move those along technology by technology. And now they are just, again, part of my photos library. So these images I took in the eighties are equally as accessible because I had that scanning Incredible. Uh, access at various times. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I should dig in. I, you know, I have I have boxes, and some of those boxes I know somewhere in there there are a few photo CDs that was like, uh, you know, sixth grade or something for me. You know, but I, I remember I think it's getting so readable. 
I think photo what? CD format is still. What? Yeah, I was a few years ago. I was digging it up because I kept the original format files too, yeah. as well as exporting them in the highest resolution. And I believe I can't remember if it's well. One thing is that uh, Graphic Converter, I believe, probably opens them because <laughs> it opens everything. It does. Um, it always has. If, <laughs> if not that, I believe there is software out there that will let you open photo CD format files, which is awesome. I should I should try. I need to dig it up. I huh, I had gone through this process at some point along the way of just kind of actively training myself to leave paper behind and like leave the paper trail in my life behind and sort of yeah, become yeah. everything all digital all the time, right? Which I was really you know proud of and got to the point where that's pretty much true. But then when the Apple Pencil came out, because I started once again taking notes on my iPad occasionally in longhand and. Mm. I, a, I literally had hardly done any writing longhand at all in so <laughs> yes. long. It was kind of like, I'm, I'm not sure if I remember my cursive anymore. You know, I can still print. It's terrible, but I can. But, you know, there's all this research that talks about how when you're writing for recall, you know, taking notes that the actual physical act of doing that and kind of your brain connecting to the motions that your hand is making, it really aids in recall. From my earlier life, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of like journals and notebooks and all the things that I wrote things in for years and years and years. And they're still floating around, but they take up a lot of space and they're totally not searchable or accessible <laughs> or whatever. And then I switched over to digital and now I've got really nice archives of searchable notes. But then I started finding it delightful once again <laughs> to like take notes long form. And when I'm writing less for efficiency and more for sort of exploration, I'm now finding myself starting to handwrite again, except into my iPad, just talking about cycles and like sort of digital and analog moving in circles and going back and forth. It's been really interesting to watch my utter idealism at one point of how great everything was going to be when I finally ditched analog note taking forever. And then to find now that I'm <laughs> moving back around. And then in the process, now that I've started doing that products that I've loved, but have had no use for like field notes and all kinds of yes. wonderful paper things. I've loved them and even bought a few just for like the relic, but never made use of them. And now I'm starting to write down things on paper again. So it's just, it's just really funny, Glenn. <laughs> it is so funny you say that because I hadn't written in cursive largely for decades, right? And I started having to sign my name because I was doing work. I was making artistic work and signing it. And I'm like, man, I'm really bad at this. So I start to practice my cursive a little and the and a light bulb hits me. I've never been a big stylist into, I've always been a typer really than anything else, but it suddenly hits me. I'm like, oh yes, cursive is faster to write than block printing. This is one of the whole points of cursive is that there's a flowing hand you can write quickly with. And I start practicing and I'm like, oh, I actually like writing with cursive. I don't like writing by hand because I was block printing or using a kind of style of my own devising that is very hard to write for any period of time and cursive feels good. So like you, I've started writing in cursive again. I really have hardly done any cursive writing probably for 35 plus years. And it was such a great little accidental rediscovery. So I'm not doing calligraphy. I don't have a fancy round hand. Sure. I'm not using nibbed pens, just even with a sharp pencil. It's weird how this is so funny that you discovered that too. I'm just enjoying <laughs> writing in cursive and uh, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, it's so great. Most of the people who listen to this show are not necessarily designers, even of any stripe. You know, I talk a lot about games here and uh, mm -hmm. role-playing games and tabletop games and design and technology. And then 
all different kinds of arts that feed into storytelling, there's something, and I can hear it in your voice today, when when someone who loves typography has an amazing, you know, a letterpress broadsheet that they're looking at, or or even just an inc- an impeccably well laid out, not even a fancy designed poster, but just like a block of text, but but that's really, really lovingly crafted and laid out and everything's proportional. There's something pretty nuanced and pretty wonderful there. And I just wanted to ask if you could kind of talk a bit about what that is to you and and how it contributes to the story that people are telling through not only the words on a page, but also how those words are set. Well, that's such a fascinating way to think about it. You know, I was trained as a graphic designer and, you know, I wound up in journalism where I literally tell stories, but I mean, design is about communication. That's kind of, you know, it's a cliche, but it's cliche, by the way, being another word for metal plates that were printed in press. Anyway, sorry, get off topic, but, um, <laughs> that's great. But it's a bit of a cliche. And this thing about type for me, I read a story in everything I see. And so there's an issue of connoisseurship or being an insider. So, uh, you know, I can pick up a book and sometimes my first reaction is the type tells me a story and how it's used and the choices that were made informs from history or the feeling that's trying to be conveyed. It it is almost a palpable thing to me when I look at type, I feel it. Mm -hmm. So at some level, the underpinning of graphic design is that everything tells a story, but only some people can tell you what the words are, right? So, you know, I had a friend when I was in high school, I remember him saying, well, music conveys emotion. I'm like, really? Does it? And I'm like, of course it does. I was like, I never really, didn't really get it. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. Cause I hear something. What was it? Le Corbusier said something like, I paint the color red and you see the bowl. Like Mm -hmm. there, there are... There are these associations. And so I have to believe that something that is well-designed or designed with a certain intent, it produces an effect in the viewer without any need for sophistication on the viewer's part. Some people will tell you graphic design is sort of a fraud, that it's meant for other graphic designers. And I'm like, no, no, that's bad graphic design. Like As someone with a design eye and someone who designs, I am always looking for the story I can convey to somebody even when they don't know the language which is being told, but it still makes sense to them. It's the tone of voice. I mean, like type is a tone of voice, even if you don't speak the language. I'm always driving my kids crazy because I'll be like, oh, that's Albertus. Like we're watching an episode of the Jeremy Irons Sherlock Holmes series. And there's a bit at the end and Watson flips up a newspaper and I'm like, oh, and I freeze frame. I'm like, that's Albertus. And they're like, dad. I'm like, nope, it's Albertus. And they're like, I'm like, but Albertus was only, uh, you know, designed in the 1930s. And this is episode is set in 1927. <laughs> exactly. And also they wouldn't have used it in a newspaper. It wasn't produced. For <laughs> blah, blah, blah. But, but it told me, but it, but it was still like, there are stories that get told through the choices that are made and people read those stories at different levels. You know, sometimes it's a historical thing. Like, you know, I am reading a historical message into decisions and sometimes it is something that's very coarse. That is just, you can tell anyone can look at this and get a sense of feeling. You'd say, what is this? How does this make you feel? Or do you feel like this is a formal or informal novel? Is this novel humorous? What does this page mean to you? You could ask someone and they would give you an answer that would be just as good as someone who had been designing their whole life because it was intuited by them that that was the the meaning without them having to use a design language that they'd learn. Yeah, I think the whole idea of typography as the voice of a written piece really resonates with me. And I think that question of elitism or training versus just kind of what's received by anyone passing by, Mm -hmm. at, at a high level, that's true for any really nuanced art, right? If you have food that was prepared by an amazing cook, whether it's like 
your grandma who's spent decades perfecting her recipe for fried chicken in the kitchen or a chef at an exquisite restaurant, if you take away all the trappings of it, whether or not you can appreciate all the details of what goes into preparing this thing, you know the difference between delicious and wonderful fried chicken as opposed to just something that was picked up at the supermarket. And you might not know or care about any of the details, but you can feel it. Something in there is just right. And it's maybe not even enough for you to stop and get technical about it, but just like, oh, this is good. This is really good. And I think it's the same thing. If you've left a piece that you've read, whether it's informational or poetry or an ad for something or whatever it is, if you've left with a really clear sense of the rhythm and the emotional flavor and and the layering and, and the ease with which you were able to sort of absorb the words or the information or whatever, then the typography served its purpose really well. And it's fun because if you have training or background or care about it, you can really start picking apart exactly why this worked or why it didn't. But when it's done right, the effect of it falls on even people who aren't trained, whether or not they realize it, which I think is pretty lovely. Then there's a the funny thing where like, I, you know, I pick up some kind of document and I said, oh, this was designed by somebody at Yale. My wife's like, really? And I'm like, yep, <laughs> this typeface, this, you know, the number of type size styles, like this to me is a Yale document. I recognize it because I worked there and I uh-huh. designed documents like that, but, it all, you know, I worked at the printing service at the university after I graduated. And I'm like, this is pervaded with it. You know, and you get that a little bit with like, this is a Cranbrook, someone graduated Cranbrook, somebody went to, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, art center or whatever. And it's not even like saying, oh, it's hackney, but it's more like I can feel, I can run my fingers in over my mind's eye and I can, <laughs> I can sense what's going on there. It's just fun. It's just fun. It's fascinating. I mean, this was the thing that I came back to when I started doing uh, letterpress again, a couple of years ago, I did this residency where I spent a year printing in a variety of means and went to museums and, and just learned, learned some new technique. It was great. I feel like reading is a tactile act of your eyes. Like you're using your hand when you read, um, mm. even when you're not touching something, there's a relationship there that is really funny. And I think when you print, you close the loop and you, you know, you're doing the actual physical act of making a thing that's tactile that then the eye reads, but you know, it's not an accident that type was not accidentally discovered in a mountain. It wasn't naturally eroded from stone. It's, it's not found in nature. It is something we develop that comes out of structures of the brain that I think is a deeply tactile thing because it was something we used our hand to make. We don't write with our feet. Typically we don't write with an elbow. You know, you've seen those brain mappings that show how much of the brain is devoted to the hand and the eye and so forth. Typography is a form of visual storytelling that exists alongside compliments and stands apart from the actual content you're conveying. And when done badly, it takes away from that because it tells the story that's at odds. You can do that, you know, intentionally too. You could set a very serious story in in Comic Sans if you want. But there's a a relationship because we tell stories at varying levels. And some of it's with words which go right into our brains, right? And some of it was with our eyes seeing the way in which the words are presented, which goes into our brains in a different way. Like I'd love to understand the difference, in fact, between how we read and how we see what we read and how some of that is more, say, more tactile, more like a thing we touch than just a thing we interpret. Mm-hmm. Man, eyes as fingers kind of running over the pages. I'm just like spinning off on that for a bit. Because <laughs> I mean, I, I feel that. That's why people love to touch letterpress, right? Oh this letterpress yes. with a deep impression. We love that because it reinforces that idea. 
I've never thought that thought before, but <laughs> but but it it immediately rings to me as true. Even just basic, you know, line lengths and that whole sense of like mm. when you're reading and your eyes are moving back and forth, right? I feel like on some level that also evokes a little bit of REM sleep and you know, your eyes are moving mm-hmm. back and forth as you're moving down the page. But there's a rhythm to that that gets your brain in gear. But there's something about both line lengths and then also letting and everything else about how rapidly the type is encouraging you to move along that can allow you to stop and kind of savor each word or set of words in a different way and some type that is much more suited to just kind of like downloading all the information, you know. I love that concept of taking time to touch your way down the page. <laughs> you know, it's Braille for the eyes, which is weird, mm-hmm. but it is right. that. Right. That's, right. Why, that's why I think my, my wife's been learning uh, Braille. She was in volunteering at a, a place that provides a lot of resources to visually impaired people. And it's been oh um, very interesting to learn about that whole world and how it's used and where it intersects like the seeing and the vision impaired intersect. Mm-hmm. And it does absolutely ring to me true because like you're a designer, so you know this this issue and it will surprise people who are not designers is, you know, there's probably a thousand typefaces I've learned in my life. And I've forgotten a lot of them because I don't use them regularly anymore. As I've gotten back into design the last few years, I can suddenly tell them more and more heavily. And it is a connoisseurship thing, but it is also a brain feeling. So I look at something and it's a, why do I know what typeface that is? What aspects of it? It's not a gestalt thing. It's like a pieces of the parts tell you a story. Mm-hmm. This came up recently. Uh, there's, there's an account called Tweets of Your. It's hilarious. This person, I don't know who they are. They find like little newspaper ads and messages and things and tweet them and they totally sound like contemporary things. And they say <laughs> the source and the year. And they tweeted something. And someone said, what is that typeface? And the person CCs is like, Glenn, you know. And I'm like, huh. And I start going, oh, you know, it really seems familiar. I don't know. So, of course, because we live in the future, I go to Google Book <laughs> and I start digging up old specimen books from, a, you know, that printer's produced. And I'm digging around and I'm scanning and I'm like, oh, my God, am I ever going to get this? There's so many faces. And I'm like, nope, that's it. Like looking at this tiny thumbnail rendition, I zoom in. I'm like, yep, it's a version of Devin. Uh, that was a, you know, type thinker and type designer, whatever. And it absolutely is absolutely the same place, you know, or, or a variation maybe from a different type boundary. But I'm like, how does that work? And it's not even like I'm not particularly gifted as a type recognizer. There are people who are more so. Sure. And when I was a typesetter in my early days, I, you know, I, it was much, it was uh, even more acute though, as I could tell so many faces apart. But I asked myself, like, you know, what is that? <laughs> how does that differentiation work? And it is about a feeling. It's not like I'm looking at, you know, occasionally you're like, is this Arial or Helvetica? I got to look at a lowercase a. But a lot of the time <laughs> you look at the text and I say, oh, that's, you know, Garamond. That's Adobe Garamond. It's Garamond, you know, pro from so-and-so. This is just a, a little bit of lovely uh, serendipity, but the aesthetic world in which the secret seller is rooted is inside of the lore of a game called Invisible Sun. Yeah. And the <laughs> it's really funny. The primary Invisible Sun font, a modified version of which made its way into the logo, is actually part of the Devin font family. Oh, is that <laughs> that's, right? called, that's called Devin Swash. They're part of the same family, but they don't look super similar. But I, I love the fact that all these things, uh, they come back around. It's so great. it's pretty pretty wonderful. <laughs> oh yeah, there's nothing new under the under the sun. <laughs> this it's got a little bit of a fun it's not a what they call a reverse contrast where the strokes go heavier uh you know right to left. I'm saying this for your listeners, you know, it's supposed to up it like Bodoni is the classic a, a heavy contrast where all the strokes up and down are thick and you have these tiny strokes right and left. 
Reverse contrast is the other. Those faces often look really ugly. Divin is a little in that direction, but it's sort of, it's unique. There's no typefaces that are exactly like it now. It, it kind of looks old fashioned, but it was very popular in the time. And there were a lot of different versions of it too. It, I mean, this, and then this goes back to things like actually touching, like looking at and touching the models from which type are made. This goes back to my museum. It's like, you understand how people right when you touch the thing that is supposed to be a representation of writing that is made in metal that is then pushed into paper to simulate writing is like a whole other layer sequence of things this is what gets me to one of the things that one of the reasons why i'm interested in type history is because it keeps coming up again it's not like there was a notion and you know this as a designer there was a notion that digital everything was going to cut us off in the past and again and again well this will change it this will change it mobile and it's like no we're still using good type it has to change for different appearances but what's funny to me is all the retina and super high mm -hmm. high density displays mean that we are using something that is closer to the kind of type that was being printed say 40 years ago than we are 20 years ago that like we've moved back into a realm in which incredible high resolution gives you this sense of almost paper and so of course the type is more like what we used to print than it has been in recent years it's, it's a per that is irony i think well and, and then you start talking about true tone displays and like yeah. screen beginning to mimic paper and yeah, yeah it's <laughs> it's really fun well, well, tell me a little, I know that you are, you know, obviously you're, you're, well, I, hopefully you get a data, you know, maybe take a nap or something, but, uh, but not long after that, you're going to be, you're going to be digging into this project, but what's, what's on your mind going forward? How can people find out a little more about who you are and what you write and what you're working on? You can tell us about your blog. My blog. Yes, I have, I had a, I had a blog and then I started another site. So it had to be a glog for Glenn. Uh, it's G L O G dot Glenn F G L E N N F like rank.com. Uh, and also there's tiny is the permanent home of the tiny type museum. And I may have other additions to come. Like this is the fun part is this was the big, deal because of the overhead and making something that's sort of lasting and and substantial but having done that i'm hoping to make another edition after this one is done that will be more modest but based on the same principles and i'll have acquired all the material in the first phase so i'm gonna keep posting stuff at tinytypemuseum.com as as that happens I hope you enjoy your well-earned success. I'm so excited that Tiny Type Museum has taken off. I occasionally get people I'm talking to about their Kickstarters, and it's really kind of fun to be able to talk to you about a recently succeeded project because there's not all of the suspense of like, oh, I hope it and I don't know and I'm stressed because I'm waiting. So I'm happy to have dipped into <laughs> your post Kickstarter ending joy. And I'm really excited to follow the project as it comes along. Thank you so much. If we caught me a different point in the cycle, I would have been drinking a different beverage in the secret cellar than uh, lemon zinger, <laughs> I think. But now I'm, it's, it's going to open up some Prosecco later tonight. That sounds like a wonderful way to celebrate. Thank you so much for your time, Glenn. Have a wonderful night. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> Good night. Glenn's enthusiasm and curiosity about everything are infectious. The show notes for this episode are possibly the richest I've ever put together. You'll be happy to know that the Tiny Type Museum project is humming right along. The included book has been written and is being proofed. Anna Robinson, this time no relation, has finalized the box design. Of particular note to Invisible Sun fans, the box has secrets physically hidden within its construction, and the acquisitions phase is now complete. 
there are still a few museums and books available on order. Details at tinytypemuseum.com. Let's now turn to the magic bound in books. A phone call with my dad, Steve Robinson. So, Steve Robinson, um, the secret seller is pretty directly your fault. If you didn't exist, <laughs> I would not exist, and these people wouldn't be subject to this ridiculousness. Also, you're blaming me for this now. <laughs> so, you are, among many other things, my father. What I want to talk to you about today, though, is books, because you love books. That I do, yes. Tell me a little about your, uh, your enterprise that you have. Well, a few years ago now, I opened an internet bookstore on eBay called Wolf Mountain Books. Uh, somewhat unusual for an eBay store. I have my own web address, wolfmountainbooks.com. I also have a Facebook page called Wolf Mountain Books, which is a great way to be introduced to the store. I've been a book lover for just about as long as I can remember. After years and years of poking through yard sales and garage sales and estate sales and auctions and that sort of thing for books for my own personal collection. I one day hit upon the idea of buying other high quality books that I might not have a personal interest in, but were just fine books that I knew somebody would and to open a store. I did that and it helped support my habit. <laughs> so when you say high quality books, what do you mean by that? A couple of different things. One, I don't carry what uh, are often called mass market paperbacks, the kind of books that people carry around in their back pockets or their purses, not because I have anything against them, but they are everywhere. And the same with current books, really. If you can buy the book easily at your local Barnes & Noble, or if it's on the New York Times, the current New York Times bestseller list, or uh, Oprah Book Club or anything like that. I don't carry it because there are thousands of copies available with other bookstores. So I try to seek out and put in my store some of the more unusual books. I'm very picky. I will look through sometimes hundreds of books and maybe decide to buy five of them. I try to find older, interesting books, both nonfiction and fiction, in a broad range of genres. And I try to make every book I put in the store just a very interesting book. I describe them carefully because one of the joys of, of actually being in a brick-and-mortar bookstore, especially used in rare books, is the ability to pick up a book, to page through it, to feel the texture of the paper, to the heft of the book in your hand, even what's often called the old book smell. And yes, I've seen people <laughs> in bookstores opening books and burying their nose in it to to smell the old books. They can't do that in an online bookstore, so I try to describe the books uh, very, very carefully and very accurately to give them the closest thing possible to that experience of being able to hold the book in their hand when they're deciding whether or not to buy it. So I know that you love reading and you love learning. You are intellectually curious and always have been. But there are a lot of people who love reading and love learning that don't also love books, the artifact, in the same way. There are far more efficient ways to cram knowledge in your brain than having literal bookshelves of like leather and dead trees. What is it about the physical form of a beautiful book that moves you beyond just what you could gain from reading the content on the page? There are a great number of things about the book, especially older books, which I 
I love to find because uh, when I purchase a book that may have been published in, say, 1926, uh, long, long before even I was born, there is the knowledge, the understanding that someone, actually many people, have held this book before me. If it was published in 1926, probably it was first purchased then. And that person may or may not have written their name on the inside of the book. Whether they did or not, they held the book, they read it, they gained something of interest from the book. And I find that fascinating that I'm holding that same book in my hands. I love the texture of old books. Some of the bindings on old books are just stunningly beautiful. And even the ones that were initially published with dust jackets, to find a copy of an older book with a dust jacket still intact is wonderful. The artwork is, is very period for the time it came out. I love the fact that somebody cared enough for that book through the years to keep the dust jacket on it and to keep the dust jacket in relatively good repair. But uh, there are also some beautiful books that are often listed under, under the term fine bindings that may be leather bound or they may be cloth bound, but they had beautiful engraving and tooling and lettering on the books. And books are more than just the words contained within. They're pieces of art, really, especially if you look at some of the older ones and the, the great detail that went into designing the book covers and the bindings themselves and the gilt lettering or the silver lettering that may have been placed on the book. There's much of beauty that is in the book itself that cannot be found in an ebook. You know, there's a, a constant theme on this show about magic and what magic is as related to story, how we as humans perceive something to be or not be magic. There, there is a certain magic for sure in this artifact that has been passed down through time and great care placed into it by the illustrators and the bookbinders and the typographers and of course the author or you know the other creators involved the editing and then this thing being passed from hand to hand and read thoughtfully in <laughs> under various forms of lighting technology over time and then placed back on a shelf and then handed down and now it rests with you i think that's really really beautiful Something something really neat there about the accumulation of people and thinking and art over time in this one thing. It's really nice. Yes, there is. Absolutely. So even beyond liking learning things from books and even beyond holding a book, you, you take it to another level because I've seen your bookshelves. You have a lot of books about books on your bookshelf. What's, what's going on there? <laughs> Yes, uh, different people certainly have different collecting interests, and I have several, but among the most valued books in my collection are whole shelves dedicated to what is frequently called books about books. And it is authors through the years who have written books about the joy of hunting and buying and collecting and possessing books fine books of various kinds. My goodness. Tell us about one of your favorite books or authors on that topic. I have several, but probably my most favorite author who wrote about a number of subjects was a man by the name of Vincent Sterrett. He was born in the late 1800s and lived until about 1973-74. But over the course of his career, especially back in the 1920s through the 40s, 
He published a number of books about book collecting, including such titles as Books Alive, Bookman's Holiday, Books and Bipeds, and uh, one called Pennywise and Book Foolish, <laughs> which he, he claimed to be because uh, he was a rabid book collector all of his life and was always on the verge of not having enough food to eat. But uh, I have early copies of all of those books in my collection, and I, I love not only holding them and handling them and picking them up, but several of them are signed by him. And that means that the author who I so admire once held this book that I have in my library in his hands, and I find that um, really important to me. That's really, really lovely. Well, thanks so much for your time. I, I suspect that there are a few of the type of person who listens to this show out there who may be inspired to go learn a little bit more about bibliophilia, the love of books, or the collecting of books, or who may not have even known that there were books about books out there which should be pursued. What are a few of the other authors that you want to just mention in case people want to Google them and start finding out on their own? In the books about books category, some of the great authors are William Targ, T-A-R-G, A. Edward Newton, Dana Orcutt, and currently among living authors, I think the preeminent author on books about books right now is a man named Nicholas Basbanes, and he broke into the book world uh, some years ago with his book called A Gentle Madness, which was in fact a book about the love of books, uh, book collectors, and people who were so passionate uh, about books that he even acknowledged that uh, bibliomania is a form of obsessive book collecting. And he said, to this day, obsessive book collecting uh, remains the only hobby to have a disease named after it. It's <laughs> great. But for anyone who loves books, I would highly recommend getting a copy of A Gentle Madness. It's a wonderful book. And could you tell me, you had mentioned to me just in passing a few weeks ago, a book, it was a fic fictional work that I just remember thinking was very in line with the themes of Invisible Sun. There was a bookstore and there were maybe ghosts of books there or... Oh, yes. The Haunted Bookshop by Christopher Morley. And it was published uh, in the 1940s, I believe. It took place uh, fictionally. It took place in New York City about the time of the, uh, World War II and covered passion about books in many different realms. But the setting was a used bookstore in the city of New York. Very cool. One that I'll point out to uh, that's a favorite of mine, again, in this like fiction, which ends up happening in the context of books is a delightful little book by Robin Sloan, who is just a wonderful writer uh, named Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. Yes. It's just kind of a silly romp in, I think, San Francisco, if I remember right, of a bunch of dear friends who uh, are quirky and love each other and find mystery and adventure in the context of and beginning around a bookstore. And uh, it's delicious. Yes, so. I read that and it was a wonderful book. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was very good to hear from you. Once again, if people want to find you, you are wolfmountainbooks.com, yes, or search that on Facebook. And uh, I guess mention that the proprietor sent you if you make an order. Absolutely. <laughs> and thanks for having me on your podcast. I appreciate it. Of course. Have a great day. Well, thank you for this delivery. Objects of power are usually not allowed in the cellar. But for this, for this, I will absolutely make an exception. Stay safe on your travels back. Of course, if anyone comes asking, 
I haven't seen you. <clears throat> My friends, I have some exciting news. Montecute Games has just released a new book, a retrospective on Invisible Sun, entitled The Essence of Invisible Sun. It's being delivered right now, along with the supplementary art book, which arose from the Kickstarter reprint campaign for Invisible Sun. To my great honor and delight, I was invited to be a contributor. My short essay, The Shadow Light Wails a Welcome, also in fact an indigo incantation of level 9, is all about the meta-narrative surrounding Invisible Sun, and the brilliant community which has sprouted up because of it. I seriously can't believe I get to share a table of contents with folks like David M. Higgins, Susan J. Morris, Ajit George, and Grant Ellis, as well as the creative staff at MCG. It is a physical book winging its way across the gray to backers of the campaign as we speak. Do find a copy if you can. The book is a beauty and a delight. Special thanks to Bear for pairing the perfect artwork with my essay at the end of the book. Thanks again and always to our sponsor Gamers Giving, and to Glenn Fleischman and Steve Robinson for their time tonight. Also a special thanks to Jess Meyer for their consultative work regarding the show. If you need a keen mind for the business or production or inspiration of your thing, I cannot recommend Jess highly enough. Hire them at Burst of Hope, B-U-R-S-T-0-F-H-O-P-E on Twitter. Audio design for The Secret Seller is by Casey Ross. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games, with whom Zeros.Bar and The Secret Seller are unaffiliated. May you find freedom, my friends, from Shadow. Shadow.